So we carry on and going back a few months before Advent and before Snowmageddon uh, to back where we were in our series, The Mark of a Christian, in our study of the book, the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. And you may or may not remember, but let me help you recall that we started out in this third chapter uh, and ended um, before the break there with three things about this chapter. One was the fallacy of self-righteousness that Paul uh, exhibits to us and explains to us that there's no hope in our own righteousness. Um, We, and I'm guilty of this as well, we we talk in terms of falling short or we talk in terms of missing the mark. Those are all terms that we understand and we explain or to explain our, our sin. But the truth of the matter is it's far worse than that. We, we didn't just miss the mark. We didn't just fall a little short. We are completely the antithesis of all that is holy without Christ. That as God is the living God and He is life, he is not a, um, an aspect of life. He's not another living being, but he is the living being. He is the most glorious, wondrous, beautiful, holy thing that even when we get to the limits of our imaginations of what those adjectives might mean, God is eternally further away. If you think of the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen or have ever known and you take it and you exponentially grow it out with your imagination, you cannot go to the depth of how more beautiful God is. If you think of your life and what living means and all of the joy and the glory of living this life and, and how wonderful it can be at some times and, and take it out exponentially in your own imagination to what would perfect look, life look like, you must go eternally further to know God. You see, God is the complete opposite of our flesh. As God would tell Isaiah, his thoughts are higher, his ways are higher. And if God is not beyond your comprehension, if God is not beyond your compensations, if God is not beyond your falling short, then you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. There is no hope in our efforts. There is no righteousness in our efforts that could ever get us an attaining of who God is in His holiness. We sang this song this morning that you loved us so much that you brought heaven down. That's half the story. Not only did He bring heaven down, but in redemption He takes us up to heaven to be seated with Him. Only God could accomplish that. You see, Paul recognizes that in this third chapter. And he says, this is the fallacy of my self-righteousness. This is the fallacy of my list of all the things I've done good. This is the fallacy of thinking that I just fell a little short. The fallacy is is that there's no hope in my flesh. There's no hope in my record. There's no hope in my record of what I've done right. The only hope that I have is that in the righteousness applied to me by Christ Jesus, I will live with Him. 
You see, Paul looks at the beauty of this second person of the Godhead. And he, and he says, it's beyond me. It's, it's beyond my comprehension. It's beyond my imaginations. Why such mercy would be shown to someone like me? How is it that the second person of the Godhead would be sent to take on flesh like my flesh? To be born of a woman like I was? To know what it is to have your life dropped in the mud and the dirt? To get excrement on the bottom of your feet? To know what it is to bleed, to bruise, to, be, to feel pain, to, to suffer? How could God do that? You see, this is why the Muslim faith rejects the Christian faith. In the Muslim faith, Allah would never stoop so low to show that kind of mercy and grace. How would a king ever come and die for his people? And yet we're taught that that's the only hope that you and I have. That the king has come, the king has suffered in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine, not on behalf of His own suffering, but so that you and I might know our suffering has meaning and that there's an end game to it. And then Paul goes on to say, we must deconstruct our self-righteousness. We must have a complete understanding of our need for our Savior so that we may live in a way of dependency on His righteousness and His righteousness alone. Well, that's where we stopped. And what does it mean to bear the marks of a Christian? And I want to focus this morning on verses 10 and 11 of that third chapter of Philippians, if you would turn there with me. In case you wonder, and it's the only way I ever remember, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. Should be easy around here. In this 10th verse, Paul specifically says at the end of this compilation of, of magnificent, uh, magnificent Savior and realizing his desperate need for that, he comes with what I think is his life verse. If there's any verse in all of the Pauline corpus, all of his body of writings, all of his theology, it has to be this verse. I want to know Christ. And the power of His resurrection. And that I might share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Maybe you and I should ask that question this morning as we look at bearing the marks. As this morning we look at bearing the mark of suffering. And that our suffering leads to intimacy with God. Do you want to know Christ? The word for knowledge here that Paul used for knowing is the deepest word the Bible has for intimacy. What Paul claims is that Paul wants to intimately know Jesus. He doesn't want to know just about Jesus. He just doesn't want to know the things of Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus as, a, as simply a theology or a concept or a way of living. 
He sees Jesus as a person, as revealed in the Scriptures, as manifested in in the second person of the Godhead coming to earth, who was crucified on His behalf and who has rose again from the dead on His behalf, who suffered greatly on the behalf of Paul. And Paul says, it's Him. It's Him. I want to know Him. Better than I know anything, better than I know anyone, I want to know Jesus. I want to be intimate with Him. I want to know everything I can about Him. To the point that I know Him so well that I identify with His sufferings in this earth. Isn't that to be our mission? Isn't that to be the mission of every believer? Shouldn't it be our life verses as well? I want to know Christ. I don't want just to know a theology. I don't want to just know a concept. I don't want to know a way of life. I want to know the person who's my king. So much so and identifying with him in such a way that I identify with his sufferings here on earth. Today, I guess, is a day of um, props. Uh, I'm going to use the music stands. I want you to think of this music stand here as the truth of God. That, that it's, it's who God is. It is the absoluteness of who He is. And we'll use this stand here. I'll put them back. Praise team, don't worry. Don't freak out. Oop, that person needs to freak out. Um, and in the beginning, as God established His truth... He established His people, and we were very, very close. And as time has gone on, and suffering has begun to happen, we've begun to relevantly try to be relevant to our culture. And in the name of that, we are starting to water down the truth of the Scripture and the truth and the intimacy that we have with God so that we might be, if you look at that podium over there, as it represents our modern-day world, we are moving closer and closer to this world, to avoid suffering from this world. And we get further and further away from who we are in God so that we might be further or closer and closer to non-suffering. You see, the closer that you and I stay within the Scriptures and the life that we are called to as Christians, the more we're going to be in contrast to that life. And in that life, and our contrast to it, we will suffer. Because this life in Christ is contrary to that life of flesh. And don't you know the whole purpose of this was so that we would bring this life closer to the truth. So it asks us this morning to beg the scriptures, ask us, begs us the question where are you living? Do you want to know Christ or the world? Is your life consumed about how do I avoid suffering in this world and live more in intimacy with my flesh, more congruent with my flesh than with the truth of God? This life will bring you suffering in this life. Well, let me tell you the truth. This life is filled with suffering as well. It's just this life doesn't know the meaning of suffering. Their suffering has no 
purpose. It has no reason. It has no rhyme. It's just suffering without hope. But the truth for us is this. Everyone suffers, but not everyone knows why. However, as followers of Jesus, not only can we know why, but we may also know the outcome. That our suffering has real purpose and meaning because the intrinsic connection between our life sufferings and Jesus is intimacy with Jesus. In addition, the connection between Jesus and our intimacy with him is our inheritance from him. The more I know Jesus, the more intimate I am with Jesus, the more I understand that suffering in this life is to draw me closer to Him. As a neon flashing red light, that this life is filled with struggles, this life is filled with hurt, this life is filled with pain, yes, sometimes with great joy too, but all of those things, as Jeff so put out so well with the iron, all of those things are pressing me to know Jesus more intimately. I know their purpose. Paul says in verse 10 that I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. What is Paul saying? He's saying that at the end of me, as he's talked about through the first eight or nine verses of this chapter, at the end of myself, I begin to see God. Once I come to the end of my own righteousness, once I come to the end of my own efforts in life, once I come to the end of the rope of who I am, guess who's there? God. Sometimes God brings us through suffering to the end of ourselves so that we can see the beginning of the life that he has for us. Sometimes God brings us to the end of ourselves So that we can have a clearer picture of the life that he has for us in him. He says at the end of me, I begin to see the the beginning of him. What is that beginning? He says, I want to know Christ. The beginning is this. I want to be like Christ in this fallen world. I want to know him so well that I become more and more like him in a world that is more and more unlike him. Look at our culture today. Look at the Western culture today. How more unlike Christ could it be? How more self-oriented, self-centered, self-proclaiming, self-promoting, self-reliance could the culture be as an antithesis to who Jesus teaches you and I to be? And yet I spend 60 hours a week trying to find more comfort in the world and its ways. And comfort in my eternal Lord and my Savior who's teaching me heavenly ways. My angst, my worry, my concerns are more in my own household than they are for the household of God. What consumes your life? Who consumes your life? Sadly to say for many of us, And oftentimes I'm very guilty of it myself. I consume my life. And Jesus calls us to repent from that. To know Him. 
to be like him. I believe as Oswald Chambers said this, it's always stuck with me. If you want to do the things of Jesus, the world will love you. But if you want to be like Jesus, be careful because the world will kill you. In other words, if you want to do some pious works, do some nice things for some people, maybe donate some money to a cause, maybe give a 10-hour effort to someone in the name of Jesus, the world's going to like that. But the world's going to really struggle if you turn the other cheek. The world will call you a fool if you live in the wisdom of heaven. The world will think you're silly if you believe in an invisible God. If you really give your tunic to someone who's asked for your shirt as well, the world will think you've lost your mind. If you hold the world to the standard of God's truth and saying we must live as the Scriptures teach us to live, I must live as the Scriptures teach me to live, that world will seek a way to kill you. Why? Because this world is the antithesis of that world. And we must cease and desist of trying to make the church more like this world instead of a revelation of His world. You and I suffer for the reason also of being aliens in a foreign country. Don't you remember that Jesus said you're, not, you're in this world, but you're not of it? Paul later goes on to teach us in Ephesus that you and I are citizens of heaven. Peter would call us strangers and aliens, but yet the cornerstone of all that is eternal. We suffer because we don't belong here the way that it is. Many of us suffer because we continue to rebuild Eden and attempting to build that which can never be built here again. And most of our frustration, our worries, and our angst come from that very thing that we're attempting to do, which is to rebuild Eden on earth. You wonder why work is hard. You shouldn't. God promised it from the beginning. He told Adam, your work's going to be frustrated. Sin has caused your efforts and your work and your relationships and everything to be frustrated. So much so that Peter later in his epistle says, don't be surprised when you suffer. You're not from here. This place fell. This place is going to be burned in judgmental fire. But it's also going to be redeemed and renewed at the coming of our Lord 
as an inheritance for you and I to live in. But until that day, we live as strangers in a fallen world. And don't you know we will become more frustrated, more suffering, the more we try to live in this world. The more we try to make a round uh, square peg fit into a round hole, the more frustrated we will become. Well, that's suffering's reasons. What could be the purposes? Well, the Bible is filled with because and so that. I want to give just a few here this morning. And I'm sure we could think of many more. But for instance, in the first chapter of this very letter to the Philippians, we write, where Paul writes, I'm in chains. Why is he in chains? Why is he in suffering? How does Paul see it? Paul sees it as I'm in chains, not for punishment, but for advancement of the gospel. I'm suffering so that the gospel will advance and it will encourage others to speak more of the gospel. You may be going through things right now and you wonder, what's the point? What's the purpose? What's the so that? Well, the so that may very well be that others look at you and see how you go through your persecutions, through your sufferings, through your maladies, so that it will advance the gospel and the king's kingdom. I know of a young woman years ago who had a disease called Guillain-Barre. She was paralyzed and she was canatonic. And some of the family members came around her bed and started rebuking the devil over her suffering. And it was there that I felt I needed to step in and speak of a sovereign God who controls all things, who has purposes in, in everything that happens to His people. To say this, you don't know that this is of the devil. It may be God inflicting on this person, a wonderful ministry to the handicapped and the challenged in this world from this point in her life onward. Are you willing to accept that God may do something great out of that which hurts? Maybe God right now is doing something in your life and you're wondering, what is He up to? I promise you one of the things, if not all of the things, but at least one of the things that he's up to is he's advancing his gospel and his glory in the way that you trust him through it. So that it may advance and others may grow. Our job is not necessarily to ask why all the time, but what? Jesus, what is it that you want me to do with this? How can I glorify you with this? How can I advance the kingdom with this? Because I know the day is coming when this will be no more. 
and I will be with you forever. But King of kings right now, how can you take me and touch me and use me so that others may know you? You remember the words of our Master, right? No greater love as a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Isn't that what we are all called to do for one another and those out there? That we are called to take whatever circumstances we're in in our life, whether good or bad or poor, whether they hurt or whether we're suffering, and put them out there for the world to see. That we so amazingly trust our God. That we understand we're not of this world. And that God will use our breaking, our suffering, our sadness, our hurts that are very real. But He will use them to bring the world to Himself. And we get the privilege of being that instrument of His glory. Maybe too, the second thing would be is that you and I need to rely more upon God. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. That he had had these great visions. That he understood this great revelation. That he, he had come to this place where he had, he had seen the glory of Christ in his throne. And he says in the midst of all that to keep him from getting conceited. To keep him from thinking that he really had it together. To, to keep him from thinking that he could rely upon his own efforts and his own self. He says, God gave me a thorn in my flesh so that I would rely upon him. Maybe God's teaching you in the midst of your suffering and the things that are happening in your life not to rely upon yourself, but to come to Him, come to His throne, come on your knees, come before Him and say, Father, help me. I've walked with Jesus now some 55, well, 45 years. Maybe longer. And the one thing I know about him, he loves to rescue. He loves to save. He loves to come through. Even on the deathbed, right at that moment when you think you've lost it all, he says, I'm there and I will bring you home safe. God loves to show up. Paul says, I've learned through this thorn in my flesh, no matter what physical malady I have, not to trust in my own abilities, but to trust in Him who loves to show up. Maybe that's what God's doing. Or maybe the third thing here, just these three things, that the gospel would advance and we would rely upon more upon God, but that we would also grow in our faith. James says this, it's counted all joy when you suffer because it grows your faith. It deepens it. It helps you to understand and me to understand there really is a God. He's really in control and we really can trust Him. First Peter goes on to say this, that don't be surprised. It's for God's glory that you trust Him. Maybe that's what the Lord is doing. Maybe the Lord is teaching you to come deeper. When I was a boy, my dad was teaching me to swim, and we lived on the Atlantic Ocean. And the way that you learn to swim when you live on the Atlantic Ocean is you get thrown into the waves and say, swim. 
Sounds cruel, I know. Probably you millennials are freaking out. Probably need a safe space right now. But that's the way it used to be done. You got tossed out. Oh, he was in reaching distance. He would have saved you. But there's that moment that you wonder. I finally learned how to swim a little bit. And as I did, you know what he did? He went deeper. Come on out. Come on out. Uh, Dad, I can't touch out there. I know. Come on. Trust me. Uh, Okay. So I got where I knew his feet were on the ocean floor, and I could put my arm around his neck and hold on tight. Then guess what he did? He went out deeper where even his feet didn't touch. He said, come on, trust me. Trust me, son. Maybe that's where God has you right now. Maybe everything was safe when you could just you could knew what God was doing and what he was up to. But maybe now you're not so sure his feet are touching. I promise you they are. Maybe he's calling you, though, trust me, child. Come out. Come out. Because out here... You can swim freely. Out here, I'll equip you. Out here is when you really learn to hold my neck tight. Out here is when you really know that I love you. Out here, it's just you and me. Come on. Come deeper. You see, our suffering leads us more into intimacy and more into a deeper relationship with God. So that you and I might know suffering's outcomes. Look with me at the second half of 10 and verse 11. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings. For what end? To become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection. What is Paul saying here? Is he unsure that he'll be resurrected? Absolutely not. What Paul is saying is still a mystery of how God has done all this. But I trust the mystery. I'm going to experience the mystery. I want to know the mystery. I'm going to suffer so much and be identified with Jesus in such a way that I'll be so fully identified with his resurrected glory. Paul's saying, I'll exchange every ton of suffering I have for the eternal weight of glory to come. Because I realize I'm not of this earth. I realize that God is using everything in my life to bring Himself glory. I realize that God is teaching me to trust Him. I realize that God is teaching me to come deeper with Him so that I can know Him more intimately, so that I may inherit all that is mine in Him and have all that is mine as a co-heir with Jesus. In all of our suffering, in all of our trials as believers in Christ have that one outcome that is is same for all of us. That we would be joint heirs with Christ. To fully know Him not only in the way He suffered in this world, but to abundantly and eternally know Him in glory forever and ever. That as he comes back and he redeems this earth and he renews it and he refreshes it and gives us new glorified bodies that we will reign with him upon this earth. 
let's don't be so short-sighted. Let's don't be so myopic in our vision. Don't think about just the circumstances of today. How do you not do that? Well, one way is this. Your suffering, my suffering, is not directly related to your sin or my sin. It is a result of collectively all of our sins. But we are not being punished. You are not being punished for your sins. Jesus took the punishment for your sins. Oh, you may be living in some consequences of some really bad decisions. You may be living in the consequences of poor judgment. You may be living in the consequences of sinful choices in the flesh. But know this for sure, that if your faith is in Christ, he has taken your punishment away. He's taken it upon himself. And you fear not the throne of God for punishment any longer. When you understand that and you can believe that, then you understand that the things that you suffer today are not from the past, but they're for the future. That God is using those things that you're suffering right now for your future glory with Him. And when you realize that, then you are saying, mold me, shape me, God, do with me as you please, so that I might look like your son. But if we're caught in today, if we're caught in it's up to us, if we're caught in this world, there is no reason. There is no purpose. There is no final outcome. There's just hopelessness. On the back side of your sermon notes, you'll see what does this all mean. Well, let me say this first thing is this, that you and I must be dying Dying to ourselves. Putting to death our flesh. This shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us who follow Christ. Part of following Christ is to do what? Deny self. Take up your cross. In other words, crucify self. And do what? Follow Him. I know that's not a church building concept. Not necessarily something we would hear from a televangelist, but it is what we've heard from the Lord. It is what we've heard from our Master. It is what we've heard from the King of Kings. Deny yourself. Deny your impulses to be right, to justify yourself, to promote yourself, to protect yourself. Deny all those things. Take a cross up that looks like my cross and follow me. Put to death those things that are fleshly about you. Your need to be continually stimulated by more. To continually to seek security. To continually seek 
self-protection. You and I must die to that so that we might freely live for Jesus. And the second thing is this. The contrary of dying, but to be living unto Christ in His glory. To realize that the words that we speak, the actions that we take, the agendas that we set, the motivations of our hearts should be for the glory of our King. That our walk is to be a walk of imitating and emulating the walk of Jesus. Be careful to know that if you want to do the things of Jesus, the world will like you. But if you want to be like Jesus, the world will hate you and want to kill you. But Jesus calls you to have eternal life and glory with Him. To live for Him. To find life in Him. To live life forever forever with Him. And not just as people who are living a life that seems like this life. But as people who begin to realize the life is beyond my imagination of how great it will be. A life of being the bride of the Holy King. A life of being so intimate with Him that His dreams... His purposes, His calling is mine. And it is my privilege and my eternal glory to sing the praises of my beloved. May we wear the marks of suffering so well that we look like Him. Let's pray.